This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Alexander McKeever. He's an independent researcher and he's been documenting all of the recent assassinations in Afrin in northern Syria. Specifically, he's been looking at a group called Wrath of Olives. That's a low-scale assassination squad, basically, of Kurdish militants that have been in Afrin assassinating the Turkish-backed rebels in the area since they invaded with the Turkish military at the start of the year. If you like what we're doing with Popular Front and want to keep it going, please do consider supporting at patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode is sponsored by thedefensepost.com. We had this thing happen in uh, Afrin or Afrin, however you want to say it, at the start of the year, right, where, uh, you know, Turkey, uh, with the help of Syrian rebels, uh, invaded Afrin. Can you tell us about that? What happened? Yeah, so that began on January 20th this year. It had been rumored for maybe over a year. I mean, you know, uh, Turkey's... uh, Erdogan says a lot of stuff, and it kind of no one really believes it for a while. But it did eventually happen towards the end of January, and it took about two months. Um, sort of went slow at first. Uh, it seemed like YPG put up stiff resistance, sort of around the edges. But by early March, Turkey and uh, their allies had taken the whole border area, so um, stretching from Azaz all the way down to the uh, northern end of Idlib. And then pretty soon after that, it was uh, pretty, uh, they took uh, Afrin City pretty fast. um, It was actually by March 18th. And that uh, was precipitated by a, um, what seemed like a YPG withdrawal um, and a mass exodus by civilians. Uh, The uh, human rights uh, watches uh, estimate about 137,000 people fled. I didn't, I didn't know it was that much. That is a lot of people. Yeah, that's the estimate. It's hard to say for sure. And this was in the initial month, and they uh, ended up in the Shahba region, which is the region uh, right to the east of Afrin, north of Aleppo city. Right, and which groups were involved in, uh, in the taking of Afrin? Because I remember seeing all of this footage where they were like, yeah, we're training up these, these soldiers and the Turks have been giving them uniforms. Um, maybe you can tell us, how did that happen? You know, there were people crossing into Turkey to train and coming back and forth. Yeah, so the uh, direct Turkish involvement in Syria really began in August of 2016. That was the start of the Euphrates Shield operations, which uh, Turkey embedded along with a, a wide spectrum of rebel groups and basically invaded North Aleppo, um, initially fighting ISIS. Um, this culminated in the capture of El Bab, uh, which is a mid-sized city to the north uh, east of Aleppo city. Yeah, and then this became sort of a, f- a foot race with the uh, YPG, both from the east and the west, to because uh, the YPG was trying to you know, connect the cantons uh, from the Mimbij area, just west of the Euphrates, uh, to connect it to the Afrin Canton all the way in the west. Right, and that would have that would have basically given them almost total control of the border of northern Syria with Turkey. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, uh, if, uh, if you ignore the, there's a small area from Azaz to Jarablus, um, but it would create this one coherent, uh, continuous YPG territory, which was basically Turkey's uh, worst nightmare. Um, after you know fighting this 30-year insurgency with the PKK and them viewing the the YPG and the PKK as analogous. Yeah, no, it's basically like having your worst enemy on your doorstep and being able to gather. Now, I am no fan of Turkey, but I can understand why they were like, hmm, you know, we want to get in there. And which groups did they use to uh, to you know to to invade? Because you know, like we were saying, it's not. It's not, you know, there was some Turkish military, you know, moving in there, but a lot of it was so-called Syrian rebels. Yeah, so um, it really uh, initially was, so you had this territory in northern Aleppo that in February 2016, in a coordinated assault between uh, the regime and some of the uh, Afrin YPG, as well as uh, Russia, cut off this one pocket around the, sound, the city of Azaz on the border of Turkey. 
And so there's a whole group of uh, rebel, there's a whole uh, spectrum of rebel groups within that town. And that's sort of what became the nucleus of this northern Syria Turkish proxy force. And this includes, um, you know, just random small local groups that are, uh, revolve around like one town to some uh, tur ethnically Turkmen groups that have become very, that have, throughout the war have been very close to Turkey. And um, as well as some bigger national groups like Felak Asham, which is probably estimates of maybe 3,000 to 5,000, 6,000 fighters and are prevalent across all the uh, northwestern front lines from Latakia through Idlib, Hama, western Aleppo, northern Aleppo. So they're really uh, probably, I'd say, the most important group that's Turkey's close ally in northern Aleppo. Felak Al-Sham. Yeah. Right, and can you tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, so they started in 2014 as a merger of, I think it was like 19 different rebel groups. A lot of them pretty small, pretty localized. Uh, when they first came out, there were, um, from like Western uh, journals and stuff, uh, analysis that was connecting them and some of their component groups to uh, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood. Um, though really this was more of a, a funding thing, the Muslim Brotherhood, because their leadership was all outside of the country, is sort of irrelevant. I mean, uh, ideologically you can say a lot of the groups are the same, but the organization itself is... Right, and the, the Muslim Brotherhood thing, you know, I, I know it's, it's a big thing out there in the Middle East, but it's a bit of an umbrella group. Well, also, like, each country has their own uh, party, own Muslim Brotherhood party, but Syria's, uh, the party had been banned since the 80s, and the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood party was uh, based in, like, in Turkey, and they tried to take advantage of the revolution, but they, were, they had no actual ties, really, inside the country. But anyway, digression, um, yeah, ideologically Islamists, um, sort of, uh, I, like not, not uh, Salafi, not like Jabhat al-Nusra or anything like that, but de definitely Islamist oriented. Sure, like hardline conservatives. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. And so going back to Afrin, when, when the invasion happened, how many fighters were attacking the YPG? Estimates are like 25,000, 30,000 rebels. Uh, it's hard to say how accurate that actually is. Mm. And how big is Afrin? Like what, what kind of city is it? How many people were there? So the population of the district itself was 200,000. Uh, that's pre-war census. I believe that's tw uh, 2004. And the city itself, I think, was about 40,000, maybe 50,000. So made up a significant portion of the district, but wasn't a necessarily a large city itself. And how did the operation go down? Like, I saw, you know, we all saw the footage. There was looting. Come on, you know, let's be honest. They were, they were openly looting people's houses in the middle of the street. They had no shame about it. Why did it go down that way, do you think? And, and who was responsible? Well, I think uh, one thing that's important to note is that unlike most of northern Aleppo, Afrin was relatively untouched by the war. I mean, the, so the government pulled out in 2012 um, to sort of consolidate their control elsewhere, and the YPG took over. It becomes a canton in 2014 and was not under bombardment, aerial bombardment by the regime uh, in 2016, sort of was in this tactic agreement with Russians. The Russians embedded sort of as a deterrent against the Turks. So like the people, people's houses weren't looted. People hadn't fled. They're uh, pre, pre Olive Branch. Oh yeah, we, we should mention this, this operation to, to invade Afrin and take it away from the YPG and the civilians living there. It was called uh, Operation Olive Branch. And well, maybe you can explain why they called it that. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a stab in the neck, that name, you know? Yeah, so uh, Afrin's main industry has historically has been farming of olives and oil production. And so this, uh, yeah, so the name's a reference to that and obviously sort of tongue in cheek because Olive Branch peace but really the opposite yeah really the opposite well yeah maybe you can go back to that you were saying like before this happened it was 
like you said, it was relatively untouched. And I know that a lot of refugees from Aleppo and other places, even Idlib, ended up in Afrin before all this happened. Yeah, there's estimates of, I think, up to 100,000. It's hard to say for sure. Um, and I mean, people had, throughout the war, fled Afrin too just because of economic hardship. I mean, there's, I know Afrin had a small uh, Yazidi population uh, clustered around uh, three different uh, little geographical areas. And a lot of the uh, leadership of that community had fled to Europe a long time ago in the last seven years. Uh, so like people had left, but it had attracted, yeah, these uh, internally displaced people. But going back to the looting, yeah, oh, it, unlike other parts of Syria, like the North Aleppo stretch that the rebels took in 2016, 2017 with the help of Turkey, Afrin was uh, relatively um, well off, like people, people's houses hadn't been looted before, people's houses hadn't been bombed. So there was a lot of uh, sort of civilian material that was available for these groups to loot in the first place, unlike other areas. Yeah, there, there was plenty of spoils to take for them. Yeah, and it was just uh, when the city fell, there was no armed resistance because the YPG had pulled out. And then it just became a free-for-all between fighters of various groups. I know what you're saying, you know, the YPG pulled out. They even said, right, we're putting out before, you know, any more civilians get killed. But there was fighting before that. It wasn't like they just fled. It wasn't like Kirkuk in, in Iraq or anything. They were fighting, right? I saw a lot of videos. Yeah, the uh, operation itself took two months. And, I, I mean, there were probably, I know uh, some people had been documenting it, but there was probably about... 30 or 40 anti-tank guided missile videos, like, uh, you know, various Russian anti-tank missiles. From the YPG? Yeah, from the YPG side. And, yeah, uh, the estimates of FSA casualties, Turkey claims 300, uh, YPG claims, like, I don't know, 800 or something. So probably somewhere in between those numbers. Turkey, I know there's confirmed, I th believe it's... 55 Turkish uh, soldiers were killed since uh, January 20th. That includes after operations had ceased. Uh, but I believe during operations, it was 50 Turkish soldiers were killed. Right, so what kind of role were the actual Turkish army proper? What role were they playing in Olive Branch, the attack on Afrin? Air Force was involved. There was heavy bombardment beforehand, um, artillery bombardment, and that continued through the operation, um, so softening up YPG defenses. I mean, before the operation, there's, I mean, you'd seen pictures for years of the extensive fortifications around the, uh, the borders of Afrin, uh, specifically around the, t uh, mo not actually necessarily focused towards Turkey, more focused towards Syrian rebel territory. So there's a stretch of trenches on a hilltop looking over Idlib, there was uh, the same, like these towers and trenches, so a fortification system looking over Azaz. Um, and those in the first couple days of the operation had been leveled by Turkish uh, artillery and air force bombardment. So Turkey had also embedded on the ground with, uh, with rebel groups and also gave rebel groups uh, armor, like uh, various armored personnel carriers, some tanks, Though this, uh, looking at the videos, it's hard to tell like if these groups were actually given this or they were sort of used them for propaganda purposes. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of videos from the operation of them sort of like, you know, driving down streets of recently conquered towns and these APCs and sort of, like in very uh, sort of braggadocious ways. And what kind of training were they given to the rebels that they you know that they basically employed? To, to deal out this attack and this invasion. I saw a few videos and some images and it looked like they were giving them some real, you know, proper training. It wasn't just your usual kind of, this is how to throw a grenade, blah, blah, blah. It looked like military training to me, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, for the last uh, two years, like every couple month or two or whatever, you'll see from various rebel groups, like 500, soldiers or 500 recruits have graduated from whatever camp uh, under Turkish funding and I guess Turkish training. I, I, I'm not an expert in military training. I can't say exactly how professional it was, 
But I know for since 2016, you've seen these uh, sort of propaganda videos and imagery from rebel, the rebel side of so-and-so graduates of whatever camp. No, I mean, I'm not an expert either on, on the kind of tactical training side of things, but they are NATO's second largest army. And they are training these guys to go and attack what are also NATO's allies. I mean, excellent. You know, it's, it's a mad situation. But um, so so what happened after that? You know, let's get into that now. After Afrin fell, after the YPG pulled out, then what happened? So as we said before, there was the immediate chaos. And uh, this was March 18th. Um, you know, videos all over social media of looting, um, so you had this statue in the uh, in one of the main circles in Afrin City, and I mean the rebels like took a uh, bulldozer or something and threw a chain around it and dragged it down. Um, well, yeah. So so this was this was Kawa the blacksmith, uh, you know, a famous kind of historical figure in all of Kurdish culture. It's not just PKK, YPG, whatever. It's all of Kurdish culture, which. I think that was a big blow to a lot of people because they're saying, oh, you know, we don't, we're, we're not against the Kurds. We just don't like the PKK or the YPG. So why are you taking down the Kawa statue then? You know, it's, it's, it's a, it was a bit of a clear fuck you to everybody, I think. Yeah, and there were, uh, t- there were rebel activists, I remember at the time, that like, wrote articles being like, what the hell, like, this is exactly what they're accusing of us, us of. Why are you doing this? Blah, blah, blah. So... Yeah, that was, that was really bad imagery on their part. Um, pretty much as soon as the operation ended. Also, there was large-scale infighting uh, between several groups. Uh, there were videos of like tens of people being captured. Um, and that's sort of indicative of the security situation in the first couple of months. There was a ton of reports of infighting. There was mysterious bombings in Afrin City that were, weren't claimed. Um, assassinations and besides the infighting also since uh, Afrin fell to uh, Turkey and their allies there have been also a ton of reports of besides the looting kidnappings tortures disappearances uh, uh, the claiming of abandoned property and these have been reported on by various human rights watch groups I believe Amnesty International Human Rights Watch the UN as well as rebel media groups too, uh, pro-rebel media groups, both within Syria and outside of Syria. Yeah, well, we'll get into all the kidnap stuff later, but tell me about these, these groups that surfaced, these assassination hit squads, if you like, Wrath of Olives, uh, I think the, the Hawks or something. Like, tell me about them. Yeah, so, well, okay, as, as soon as Afrin fell, the YPG was claiming uh, insurgency actions uh, I, I, in, the, in the first two weeks, there was still uh, sort of, I think, pockets of YPG remnants up in the mountains. So that's not necessarily insurgency. That was like, uh, this is sort of in the central highlands of the uh, district. But we, I'd, I'd say the insurgency begins in like halfway through the first week of April. That's when you, uh, the actions start being reported outside of these isolated rural areas. And these... Initially, the YPG claimed a bunch of actions. Um, well, not a bunch. Uh, I think April is 12, May there was nine. And these, there wasn't much uh, video or f- uh, picture evidence of these. Um, but at the same time, you have, there was a group initially called Afrin Hawks, um, which popped up, which drew a lot of uh, speculation on social media that it was basically a, a made-up group that was using imagery from other conflicts or other parts of the conflict to claim insurgent actions. And I, I think uh, the general consensus now is that that group was just a social media phenomenon. Um, but since then, uh, Beginning in June, this group showed up. Its name is Ghadab Azaytun, which in Arabic means Wrath of Olives, uh, referring again to the olive production prevalent throughout Afrin and also sort of a uh, FU to Operation Olive Branch. Absolutely. You've got, you got Operation Olive Branch, and then you've got these what are basically guerrillas, right? It's like guerrilla actions, like you say, in actions, they were all like guerrilla actions. 
you know, guys turning up in the middle of the town and shooting people in the night and what have you. And it's called Wrath of Olives. It's very clear the message they're trying to send, you know. Yeah, so this group declares itself in June. Um, but the first couple actions they claimed, they, they, uh, they claimed some down in Idlib, in southern Idlib. And I've also seen on social media people saying, I haven't actually got, taken the time to verify this, but that these images also were taken from somewhere else. But pretty soon after that, I'd say halfway through July, they started posting videos of these uh, nighttime ambushes and IED attacks. Uh, initially, that's what they were doing, that were clearly uh, ongoing. They weren't recycling the footage from somewhere else. And then in early August, uh, I believe it was August 5th, they uh, posted their first execution video, which they've become known for since then. Um, they basically set up a fake roadblock on the side of the road. This is in northeastern Afrin in an area known as Shara or Sharon, and stopped a guy on a motorbike, dragged him into the woods, looked at his ID, and then shot him in the chest with an AK. And this is all on camera, right? I've seen it. It's like real kind of filmed on a potato, you know, but it's all, you know, legit video footage from that area. Someone's filmed it on their phone and stuff. Yeah. And this guy, um, his name was Akash Haji Ahmed. And he was actually a member of the local council in Shara. In the, so after the uh, Operation Olive Branch, Turkey started uh, creating all these government institutions. Uh, this is similar to what other, what's happened in other rebel-held territory, where these local councils pop up, uh, corresponding to like a, a main town or sub-district. So all the seven sub-districts of Afrin have these. And this guy was a member of this Turkish-backed local council, and they executed him in broad daylight and yeah, accused him of being an informer and assisting Turkey in the uh, looting of locals', uh, locals possessions. So this started the, the series of execution videos that this group, Wrath of Olives, has uh, been posting for the last four months. Right, and, the, and their accusation, if I remember correctly, was this guy is a collaborator. He helped the Turkish-backed rebels, if you like, come in and start killing people around here. Yeah. Right, and then they started bringing out these... There was a lot more videos after that, right? They had these spooky, like, I don't know, some weird, like, saw music from the film Saw or something like that. But, you know, they, they're turning up in the middle of the night on the side of the road, shooting people through their windscreens, you know, other members of these militias that took over Afrin. And I've seen these videos where they're, like, holding up bits of paper and stuff like that, you know, to basically say we are the Wrath of Olives and stuff. Yeah, they also, those papers will have the date on it, too, as a way to authenticate the, uh, uh, the attack. Okay. Yeah, usually it would say, got a Zaytun, and then have the date underneath it. Okay, so I guess that's, in a, in a way, a response to this earlier thing, you know, where Afrin hawks, when people say, no, it's not real. This is like, no, it is real, you know, we're showing you. Yeah, yeah. Now, interestingly, those, uh, these nighttime ambushes on rebel, individual rebels, either on motorcycles or in uh, pickup trucks or whatever, these, the, the YPG has been engaging in similar actions since Afrin fell. And like almost identical, like they're hiding behind rocks or whatever in the night. And it's, it's like a gunman and a cameraman. And they shoot them, run up, take a, uh, record their body and then take off. So a lot of the YPG actions are actually exactly the same as those. The difference is really the execution videos. Yeah, well, th this this is where I my theory is, and a lot of people won't like this, but I don't care because war is grisly anyway, and this is how things happen. My theory is kind of Wrath of Olives does the dirtiest stuff that the guerrilla wing in Afrin, if you like, of the YPG don't really want to claim because they don't want to upset, you know, their coalition partners, the US and stuff like that. But like you said, the videos look very similar. In fact, I spoke to Everest from uh, Calibre Obscura and he said one of the guns used in a Wrath of Olives um, execution video was almost identical or it was identical to a weapon used in a YPG assassination video, you know? Yeah, that's, that's not surprising. 
Yeah, it's, it's not, you know. I mean, do you think... Uh, I've spoke, you know, I've spoken to people in YPG and say, no, no, it's definitely not us. But, you know, like I said, war, war is horrible. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. And, and they maybe you could tell us about that statement, right? YPG released a statement saying it's not us because I think the US leaned on them or something. Yeah, uh, that's definitely possible. Um, yeah, the statement came out on August 22nd. Um, it initially says the inhumane crimes committed by the occupying Turkish army and its terrorist allies in Afrin recently have been increasing. Uh, various armed groups operating under different names are conducting military operations in Afrin and promoting their actions on social media and websites. From the methods applied in these types of attacks, it is understood that some of these groups have links to Turkish uh, secret services. So basically, um, I think part of this uh, is in relation to the Afrin Hawks and the other group that came out in early September that also was accused of being purely a social media thing, Hawks Revenge. Uh, these groups both claimed bombings within Afrin City that they said were targeting like uh, military vehicles. But I mean, it, it's clear from civilian activist footage that civilians were killed in these attacks. Yeah, there was a bombing, right? It was a suicide, wasn't it? Or it was at least a... a I think uh, it was a motorbike. Motorbike, that's right. Yeah, motorbike attack. What was that? Uh, I believe that took place in July. I don't have the exact date, but it, it happened near one of the uh, main uh, circles within Afrin City. And th there's security camera footage. Actually, that day there was actually two bombings. There was one there and one across town near another uh, uh, traffic circle. And yeah, these, I mean, it's clear from local activist media that these did take a couple of civilian lives. And th the groups online that claimed them said they were targeting you know, Turkish army vehicles or rebels or whatever. But I think that, that is uh, what this statement is referring to when it alleges that groups have links to Turkish secret services, saying they're like some sort of false flag thing. Well, I mean, well, was it the JITEM? It wouldn't be the first time they've done that. However, I was speaking to uh, the guy Farat Batman, the YPG fighter we had on the podcast, and he was saying to me, um, I think it was Farat was saying this. Anyway, he was, he was saying to me... Um, that he believes some of it is regime actually as well. There were like regime guys coming in under the kind of banner of Wrath of Olives or some other Kurdish resistance group there and doing stuff. Have you have you heard any of that? I've seen that on social media. Um, I know, read someone say somewhere that they thought Efren, Efren Hawks was a uh, regime linked outfit, but I've never, I haven't seen any proof. Uh, that's all social media rumors i can't say for sure okay and wrath of olives they even have a website right why like it's so unusual the website people need to check out i don't know the address probably don't check it out actually you probably end up on a watch list like you and me but um you know like it's weird they got this website it's quite well put together i mean the website looks like trash but it's clearly they've thought it through and they, they want to show stuff it's not that different from uh the regular YPG website, like with the, uh, the way it's set up. <laughs> Funny that. Funny, weird. Well, I just meant in the, uh, the not great design of it. <laughs> yeah, but it's what my point is, they clearly, they want to get the message out there. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it must scare, come on, like it must scare the people there. I know this isn't like huge attacks, but could you imagine hearing about all these, your friends have been, you know, the rebels, oh, your, your mate's just been shot by some insurgent group that's hanging around basically in the streets that they're occupying. Um, how many people have actually been killed under the, you know, the banner of Wrath of Olives? So they've claimed a number of them. Most of the Wrath of Olives attacks have been documented, unlike the YPG. YPG, only about a third actually have. But with Wrath of Olives, they've claimed upwards of 50, 60, but from video footage, I'd say there's only about 35 that are definite. Uh, where you can actually see the bodies and the bodies within a, the context of just being killed. Yeah, and if you combine that with the YPG, official YPG insurgency, that puts it, I'd say there's about 60 confirmed. And of course, they claim like four, five, six as many. Have you, have you seen any evidence that Wrath of Olives is effective? Like, are they changing the way that the rebels in Afrin operate or anything like that? There, were, there was on, um, again, from pro-YPG media 
claims that there was like security meetings between the Turkish military and rebel groups, uh, telling people not to be traveling around at night. Um, and I mean, definitely sort of predating Wrath of Olives, there had been significant uh, buildup within the main towns of Afrin. Um, you'd saw, there's all these videos on social media of concrete barriers, similar to the ones used in Idlib, being brought in uh, by Turkey on all these flatbed trucks. And these have appeared within the, uh, the centers of all these towns. There have been a buildup of military bases that also are combined with the uh, police headquarters, the recently created uh, local police that are working in conjunction with the local councils. Okay. Um, let's talk about what Turkey is doing in Afrin. You know, the other day, I saw all these uh, these images of traffic signs written in Turkish. In fact, there were some of them that didn't even have Arabic. Obviously, the Kurdish has been taken away, but the Arabic wasn't even on there. There was just Turkish signs and, and you know, there's Turkish flags sprayed on some of the shutters on the shops. I mean, you know, let's talk about that. They've kind of taken over, right? This wasn't really, it doesn't look like the rebels have moved in and made it home. It looks like Turkey has moved in and made it home. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely fair. Um, yeah, as you said, on all public signs, Kurdish has been taken down. And this, this was an area, as I said before, the population was 200,000, estimated to be 90 plus percent uh, Sunni Kurdish with some minority religious groups, like Yazidis. I think there were some Alevis and a couple, there's, I know uh, Han Scholl has told me that there was small, actually Protestant Christian a small Protestant Christian uh, population within... Oh, he would know that, wouldn't he? Only he would know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, since then, though, obviously demographics have shifted. As I said before, over 100,000 uh, local inhabitants are said to have fled. Some of them have returned. Um, they're sort of blocked by all sides, from rebels, from the YPG, from the government, from trying to return. But... Uh, there's a mountainous region in the southeast that they've a lot of uh, civilians sort of trickled in through. But yeah, and then you've had um, estimates of 50,000 plus internally displaced peoples from other parts of Syria that have been relocated within Afrin. So these are people from Homs, from the Homs pocket, um, from parts of southern Syria around Damascus. Um, and this is a significant population. Um, this is where the claims of ethnic cleansing come in because, you know, I mean, all the Kurds have been chased out. Then they bring different people in. All their signs have been taken down. They put a different language on the signs. I mean, it, it kind of is, I think, in a way, you know. I mean, I'm not saying that the people moving in are wrong to move in there, you know. God knows if I was in the middle of the war and said, someone said, hey, do you want to live in this house? I'd be like, yep, thank you very much. But uh, there are stories of people even coming back to their houses and they're like what who are you you know why does this person live here yeah and i will say to be uh to be very fair to the idps obviously they have no choice i mean they're not there's a there's a big idp camp they've built in Afrin. i know a number of them are low are uh were settled into this idp idp camp uh just north of idlib um and there have been numerous written accounts by these people saying like we we don't want to be doing this. Like we feel bad for the original inhabitants, uh, and yeah, we're we're stuck here. There've been reports of some going back to Idlib or going to other parts of North Aleppo. I think we should be clear here because anybody who knows me knows that you know there were, a lot of people say to me, "You're pro YPG," you know, blah blah, whatever, mate, whatever. Say what you want, but. Like, don't take my word for it and don't take my bias for it or whatever. If you look up, there was a very good article re written recently. I can't remember who wrote it. A uh, female reporter, I think, or a rebel activist. And she is very pro-rebel and always has been. And even she wrote an article saying what is happening in Afrin is absolutely disgusting. Like, it's not just, you know what I mean? It's not just people saying, oh, bidgy, bidgy, like, whatever. It's not just that. It's a real situation, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I mean, some of the, the local media out outlets... Um, that are lo located in northern Aleppo and I'm sure have funding from Turkey um, have been reporting on abuses in Afrin too. Mm, yeah. Do you think they will ever get Afrin back? How is it going to happen? Do you think there's any hope? I mean, it all really comes down to the, the overall situation in Syria. I mean, um, 
really tied up in the negotiations between Turkey and Russia over Idlib. Um, Iran and the government like to play spoilers in those. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I don't think any sort of YPG insurgency is going to be able to take it back on their own. Uh, I mean, they've definitely, throughout this process, shown that, um, I mean, as, as skilled as they are, and obviously they've proven themselves throughout the war, going up against the state power that is Turkey in a more conventional sense is probably not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's madness. I mean, I know a lot of diaspora who are like, yeah, we can fight them. And then you talk to someone who's actually on the ground and they'll tell you openly, they're like, that's madness. Of course we can't, you know, we can't do that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not looking good. Um, who's controlling Afrin right now? Is there any one specific group that is in charge other than Turkey? You know, who's their main guys? So it's sort of has split up into several different, I'd say, little fiefdoms, um, correlating with where these different rebel groups fought during the operation. So within the southwest, you have Felag Asham. This is the territory that's right next to Idlib. So that that's, makes sense that they fought there because Idlib's their, their home. Um, within the northeast, you have uh, Ajab al-Shamiya, the Levant, Levant Front, um, who is local to that stretch of northern Aleppo, like Azaz. And so they've sort of crossed the border during the operation and have taken the territory right over there. Um, there's various Turkmen groups, uh, Frakat, Asultan Marad, and uh, Suleiman Shah, that have seized uh, different territories. Uh, Frakat al-Hamza, which is one of Turkey's closest allies, uh, which was actually a Department of Defense-backed group uh, when they were fighting ISIS when it was that little stretch in North Aleppo. But since then, Turkey's taken over that portfolio. I mean, Trump closed that, uh, the train and equip program when it came to Syrian rebels. And since then, also demographically, it appears that the, it's definitely shifted towards a more Turkmen uh, makeup. I believe the commander, Saif Abu Bakr, is Turkmen as well. And then there's Akhrar al-Sharqiyya, which is a very infamous group that's been getting in trouble since their founding in 2016. I mean, they had that infamous run-in with U.S. Special Forces in North Aleppo when uh, U.S. Special Forces drove in across the border during the start of Operation Olive Branch, and Akhrar al-Sharqiyya uh, sort of chased them out. Yeah, I saw that. That was the strangest video ever. They're just basically screaming at them, and uh, but they all got guns, you know. So obviously the the I mean the the troops, the U.S. troops would have just if they wanted to, just blank like dead everybody. But obviously that's not what they want to happen. But it's a very odd odd video, man. It's yeah. Well, that group, um, I will say, I'd say I'd say most of the rebel groups in the area are basically just. I mean, you have the Turkmen who are Turkmen nationalists or Turkish nationalists. Um, you have some groups that are like more Islamist tinged. You have a lot of groups that are basically just local town militias, but Ahrar Shakia is definitely, I'd say, the most Islamist group involved in Afrin. Um, there are rumors that they were, because uh, all these guys are originally from Derizor, from eastern Syria, and there was long-time rumors on social media that they were tied to uh, various Al-Qaeda members that were head, like heads of Jabal al-Nusra out in the east before ISIS took it over in 2014. I haven't found any proof of this, but I do did find through some uh, rebel reporting that their commander was a member of Ahrar sham out in Derizor. So definitely hardline Islamist ties. And um, actually it was in June that there was this whole controversy within Afrin where these posters showed up overnight, sort of telling women to wear the hijab, um, sort of telling people to pray, whatever. Um, it's Sharia shit, like literally Sharia-level signs, yeah. Yeah, and uh, pretty quickly, I think this first popped up on uh, Twitter through, uh, I think Ayman Tamimi posted it, and pretty quickly it blew up within a couple of hours. I know me and Christian uh looked into the logo at the bottom, and it was actually a dawah, a, uh, 
proselytization group based in Idlib connected to, uh, what's his name, Muasani, the, the Saudi um, Jabal al-Nusra Tide cleric. And I know Eamon Al-Tamimi reached out to the... Because the, the posters actually had the, um, the printing office's number on the bottom. Yeah, I remember that. Everyone was doing like... Like Christian from Bellingcat was doing like a zoom in. And it was like, <laughs> what? Like, let's just call them. It was crazy. Yeah, so I think Al-Tamimi called them. And it turned out the posters were printed and paid for by Al-Khran Sharkia. So they were the ones that put that all up. And now, to be fair to um, the other rebel groups and the civilian, the local councils and stuff, those were immediately torn down. Everyone was pretty pissed about them. Yeah, after everyone went mental on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think there is definitely a real divergence between Ahrar Sharkia's outlook and most of the other rebel groups. They're definitely... No, I agree. I'm just joking. But there is, there is the problem where, I, you know, I agree with you. There's, there is more nuance to it than that. However, you have to start questioning the integrity of a group that then just kind of works hand in hand with them, you know. And I get it. There are there many different alliances happening there. But after everything we've seen happening in the area already, it just, it put it this way. If I was a civilian there, I wouldn't be thinking, oh, well, okay, you know, they said take it down. Well, I trust them now. I'd be thinking, shit, like I've got to get out of here. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very interesting that Turkey's put up with two years of their behavior like this. Um, there's multiple videos you can find on YouTube of like summary field executions by their fighters. Um, they've been in trouble time and time again, like in the media. I don't know why they're allowed to control, like they control the northwestern corner of Afrin around the town of Rajo, and they're also prevalent within the city itself. Mm, I wonder why. <laughs> um. Well, actually, uh, speaking about that, I know some people have said that... Um, there's, there's several other groups, smaller and not nearly as notorious. There's uh, Jaisha Sharkia, um, which they're, they're all made up of locals, mostly Derizor, I think some from Hasaka and some from uh, Araka. And people have alleged that Turkey's sort of building up these groups in case of operations, you know, east of the Euphrates. Yeah, ab absolutely. Jokes aside, like, you know, I'm kind of saying, oh, I wonder why kind of obviously I'm implying that they don't mind working with Islamists. However, I think that's right. I think what well, I don't I think they don't mind working with them, but I don't think it's part of this kind of global caliphate. I don't think that's what they're trying to go after and being like, yeah, let's back them guys. Maybe we'll get it. You know, they don't care. They've got their country to run into the ground. Um, but what I, what I what I think is like you're saying, it's like, well, if we need someone, those are our guys. The same way they were doing dealings with Jabat al-Nusra and stuff like that. You know, it's, it is as awful as it is. It's pragmatic in times of war. Now, I, I can't suddenly say, oh, yeah, well, if YPG are working with the regime, it's not that bad because it's pragmatic. And then say, oh, it's terrible if Turkey do whatever. Obviously, the, the ideology is very different. But, it, you know, you are right. It does make sense for them if they're you know, preempting certain attacks again into the region. Yeah, for sure. Um, and let's talk about, I'll wrap this up soon. I know you've got to go, but let, let's talk about um, the situation with the kidnappings. I saw this video, what, this week, and there's, it's, oh man, it's awful. There's this young lad and he's got a blindfold on and they put a gun to his head and, you know, there's a guy standing above him with a mask on. He puts a gun to his head and he says, you know, speak, whatever. And the kid says, look, there's 20 Kurdish young men here. They're going to execute us all if, two other guys he mentions them i don't know jim jack whatever and he he says you know if, if those guys get hurt then we're all going to get killed and then he says to him now say it in kurdish and then he says it in kurdish you know it's, it's really dark and this isn't the first video i've seen like that i've seen many of them so do you have any insight into what's going on with this kind of tit for tat kidnapping and little executions here and there uh, i don't remember necessarily like some sort of kidnapped execution video but there definitely is i mean i've seen reports of possibly over like a thousand reported kidnappings since March. Um, thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to verify any of this. Uh, I mean, definitely the, these show up all over uh, Kurdish media and I mean, both, both rebel and Kurdish media in the area is run by activists as of, of course it's on the ground. So it, I definitely like to try to confirm things from, however many different angles but yeah large-scale kidnappings indisputably like hundreds of people and I mean it, it's really 
I think like a, a way for these groups to try to fund each other or try to fund themselves. Um, really, it's just a, it's just like a criminal money situation. Yeah, I mean, I, the people they've split up offering into uh, these various little fiefdoms, and yeah, they're trying to profit from it. I mean, there's all these reports of um, sort of destroying olive groves and trying to like maybe transplant some of the trees down to other parts of rebel-controlled territory. It sounds weird. This is a weird thing to say. Maybe it's, it's a weird connection, perhaps. But to me, it sounds a little bit like um, Kabul in Afghanistan in the 80s. And the whole place was just split up between different, um, you know, warlords and tribal factions. And it was a city, but each section was almost a city within itself, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I will say definitely this, the situation of Afrin not a binary between Turkey and their FSA allies and... Kurdish civilians. It's the situation is definitely way more multifaceted than that. You have Turkey and their uh, backed Syrian uh, government institutions, like the the local councils and the police. You have the various FSA groups that, again, are split along different lines. You have the Turkmen nationalists. You have Akhrar Sham, or uh, sorry, Akhrar Sharkia, and then you have these all these different local groups that are you know, trying to profit in various racketeering and looting ventures. Then you have the civilians themselves. And the civilians, I mean, you have the indigenous inhabitants. You have the tens of thousands of IDPs who have moved into the region. And then, obviously, you have the, the YPG, the insurgents. Yeah, a real mess. Um, Alex, can you tell us, before we go, can you tell us about your research, how you managed to get all of this information together? Because... I haven't really seen many people trying to track uh, the olive branch, uh, sorry, the, the wrath of olive situation as you have been, you know? Yeah, so I've been um, going through both the official uh, YPG press releases. They, every couple of days, they, or every week or so, they announce like a series of uh, insurgent actions throughout Afrin. And some of them have video, some of them have pictures. And I'm, so I keep track of those keep track of the Wrath of Olives actions and compare them. Uh, actually, something we didn't bring up before, sorry. Um, geography, the, one of the main differences besides the execution videos is all the officially declared, declared YPG actions take place within Afrin, whereas the Wrath of Olive ones, uh, some of them take place in Afrin, and most of them recently actually have been taking place within the Euphrates Shield territory. So within the other part of North Aleppo, controlled by Turkey and the rebels. So that's definitely a major divergence between the two groups' actions. And you've been, uh, you've been tracking this just through mostly open source stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also trying to corroborate it with the uh, social media accounts from various rebel groups through pro-rebel and pro-Kurdish media. And you speak a bit of Arabic as well, right? Um, I'm a student at the moment, and I'm couple semesters in, but I could definitely read more that I can understand or speak in Shami dialect. Yeah, Habibi, yeah, mate. <laughs> All right, man. Um, where can people get hold of you and, uh, you know, keep up to date with this, this excellent work you're doing? So I'm on Twitter, uh, A-K-M-C-K-E-E-V-E-R, A-K McKeever. Um, that's where I'm most active. I'm definitely working towards writing some sort of piece, uh, going more in-depth within the uh, burgeoning insurgency and trying to uh, coordinate it with uh, imagery, maps, graphs, um, etc. And that, I don't know, maybe Bellingcat, maybe popularfront.com. Well, I can't get .com. It cost me too much. Someone else had it. So it was popularfront.co. But uh, a couple of years ago, it was really cool to have a .co. It was like a Colombian you know, dot URL, whatever. So I, if, yeah, I'll just pretend it's that. Yeah, we're just so cool. We, we have dot CO. But no, definitely do check out Alex's work. It's really, really good. Um, is there a website you use at all or just the Twitter? Uh, I haven't published much in a long time, but um, yeah, I'm definitely hoping to publish this soon. And, but yeah, Twitter. All right, mate. Good luck. Thank you very much for that. That was great. No problem. Thanks for having Hello. me. So that was Alexander McKeever speaking about Afrin, the state it's been left in, and Wrath of Olives, the maybe YPG, maybe not YPG assassination squad that's running around murdering the people who invaded at the start of the year.
This episode was sponsored by TheDefensePost.com, Defense with an S. If you like what we're doing with Popular Front, please do support at Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Thank you very much to Patrick Bronte, Alium Leroy, Axel Iverson, Cedarfen, Chad Walker, Cody Bergerud, Dan, Dan Dunham, Diana Gorvanek, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, James, Joanne Stocker, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Peter McCormack, Ryan Sandercock, Stephen Henderson, Teddy, and Zachary Hinch. Please do follow us on YouTube. That is youtube.com slash popularfront. Uh, subscribe there because there will be some information on the YouTube soon about the merchandise that I'm going to be putting out very soon. There will be t-shirts, this thing called a trench mug that I've got coming. Uh, what else? Patches, like morale patches, you know, like military patches, all sorts of stuff. So go to youtube.com slash popularfront, subscribe, and there will be a thing pop up there telling you all about it soon. Um, for all things Popular Front, follow me on Twitter. That's Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N, or Popular Front C-O. That's the other Twitter account. Uh, and also on Instagram, instagram.com slash popular.front. Music this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Son of Old. Soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. Actually go there because we made this little kind of EP of the various different music we use in the outros. It's called Synthline EP part one. So do check that out. Mm-hmm.